Welcome to episode four of the Rising Edge DNO podcast, where in this first series, we are very much focused on risk mitigation and horizon scanning concerning some key hot topics. Along the way, we have already addressed US securities litigation, ESG, and UK derivative actions. I am Richard Kutcher, and our host of the podcast is Owen Dacey, head of claims at Rising Edge. Owen, how are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Um, dragged myself out of my safe little home office this morning and onto a non-air-conditioned, fully packed-out commuter train. And I forgot my mask as well. So um, all, all just so I could see you. So I hope you're proud of me. <laughs> a good start. Well, I did remember my uh, mask, thankfully, and the Waterloo and City line was running in peak time. So that makes my Brilliant. commute a, a lot, lot easier. Love, lovely sunny walk down Fenchurch Street this morning. So cyber is our focus in this episode. We know the world of cyber risk and security has been a really tricky one for the insurance market generally for some time, probably since cyber policies even started uh, being written. But obviously, we're very much coming at this cyber topic from the DNO perspective, aren't we? Yes, Richard, we are. When you look at the various surveys out there on top concerns for directors and officers, cyber risk, cyber security appears consistently and, and rightfully so. And look, when it comes to potential cyber-related DNO exposures, claims, litigation, people have been talking about this for a while, but it hasn't really come through on on scale, especially in the UK. But as regulators beef up, and you know, we'll get onto this in this area, and the litigation environment changes, maybe it will. So who do we have then joining us to talk us through some of those main issues you referenced there? So we've got Patrick Hill, Will Allison, and Will Naylor from the law firm DAC Beechcroft. Patrick is lead partner in DACB's technology, media, and information risk team in London. He handles data breach incidents in the UK and overseas and is an acknowledged leader of, in the field of cyber risk and data breach insurance. Will Allison, he's a DNO specialist with many years experience and, and leads DACB's DNO team in L- London, so brings the DNO perspective to the table. And last but not least, we have Will Naylor, who is a senior associate at DACB in the DNO team with, again, lots of experience acting on DNO claims. We've got some discussion around risk mitigation strategies for cyber risk, and we also talk through some of the potential results and exposures for DNOs relating to cyber, do some horizon scanning uh, about what the future looks like. And it's not all doom and gloom. We've got Patrick will walk us through um, what successful looks like in terms of handling a cyber incident or attack. And important to note as well that when we are uh, referencing uh, Will Allison, we talk about Will A, and when we talk about Will Naylor, we talk about Will N. Uh, but Patrick is going to start for us by explaining what risk mitigation means to him in the context of cyber exposures for directors and officers. I see risk management very much uh, as an important part of the overarching statutory and fiduciary duties owed by directors under the Companies Act to exercise reasonable skill, care and diligence. And indeed, the FCA and the PRA have specifically highlighted the need to have effective cyber risk management uh, strategies in place to maintain financial stability and to protect consumers respectively. To my mind, there are three separate strands to risk mitigation in the cyber context. First of all, there's risk prevention, which is very much about reviewing your IT security processes and procedures, uh, undertaking data audits to make sure that you're aware of what data you've got and where it's where it's at, and also penetration testing to test the uh, resilience of your cybersecurity uh, environment. Secondly, there's risk detection, which essentially is about having the technical infrastructure in place to identify issues promptly. And then finally, 
there's risk uh, remediation, which is heavily dependent on having an effective crisis response plan so that everyone knows what they're doing and how to go about it in the event that a crisis is experienced. And we've seen from the various high-profile cyber incidents to have hit uh, various organizations which have been widely reported in the press that these can have significant financial uh, and reputational consequences for directors and officers and their, and their companies. Great. And Patrick, you've, you've handled, defended many cases over the course of your career, um, including cyber incidents. Could you share with us a story or example of maybe a case that you've handled or even something you've seen in the public domain that you've seen something that's caused a claim and it could have easily been avoided or mitigated? Yes, of course. So, and I mean, generally, it's it's less about um, something which causes the cyber incident, and more about someone who causes the incident. I remember a colleague in the US telling me many years ago that the principal cause of cyber incidents was PIBSAC, and I looked at him blankly and said, "What on earth is PIBSAC?" And he responded, "Problem is between screen and chair." And I think it's I think I'm right in saying that around 80% of cyber incidents are caused by a human being, and that's either a human being doing something daft um, or something that they shouldn't be shouldn't have done. So clicking on uh, a link uh, which contains malware or access to a phony website is uh, an obvious example, or by a human being committing uh, a criminal act in illegally accessing uh, information data systems to which they're not entitled. In terms of how best to go about remedying that, training is obviously an important part of the risk management process and simply um, stressing to your people good habits and persuading them and not to do things which can lead to the company suffering harm. And of course, that's been ever, ever harder to ensure during lockdown when people have been working remotely and it's harder to do training. And indeed, people get out of those good habits, which is so important to the well-being um, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a company. In terms of specific incidents, I recently dealt with a matter where an individual, um, uh, they, they clicked on a link which, which gave access to uh, a website, which they then were persuaded to enter into their user, username and password uh, credentials. This was very well intentioned. It was They were intending to uh, donate money to charity. But of course, um, despite the best intentions, the, I mean, the website address, you could tell, was bogus because it, 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 it didn't correspond to the charity which the individual was um, intending to uh, donate to. And of course, that led to uh, the company's IT security being breached. And indeed, sadly, the company didn't have uh, adequate uh, data backups in place, which meant that when the ransomware attack hit, their entire systems were corrupted and they had no means of backing up the data. Uh, which had been encrypted by the threat actors. And of course, uh, so many organizations are so heavily dependent on their IT systems and security that if your systems are effectively paralyzed and you're unable to access your financial uh, and uh, human resource and business data, there's very little uh, for the company to do. Right, so very serious consequences um, when it goes wrong. And can I just say PIBSAC is my new favorite acronym. So thank you for sharing that. And Will, have have you got any examples you can share with us? Well, unfortunately, I don't have any uh, acronyms for you, Um, um, but um, I do. uh, We've dealt with uh, various cases, and I think that it's always very easy to look back in hindsight and say, "Oh, well, if you'd done this and that, then this could have been averted." And we all know that life isn't like that. But yeah, I mean, I think that. A lot of these things uh, arise simply because of a bit of lack of common sense, unfortunately. Um, I've had a number of 
cases uh, recently, particularly one, one springs to mind was just uh, uh, dealing with a large claim involving a financial institution, which was moving its customers from one data platform to another. And in the course of that, uh, unfortunately, there were some errors and customer data was shared with third parties and various customers were unable to access accounts. Um, and this led to you know a series of very unfortunate consequences ranging from just various different consumer claims, so claims for compensation, but also real issues with regard to their reputation and then subsequently intervention by various regulators, the ICO, FCA and PRA. You know, and all of this involved tremendous amount of you know money, management time, damage to reputation, etc. And I think one of the, the things looking back on it is that if everything had been perhaps planned a little better, or indeed some plans of how to implement the actual migration were, were done better, and you know if something had gone wrong, what was the plan then? If that had been in place, I think that uh, would also have assisted. So again, I think it's going back to the, the point that Patrick uh, made earlier that. But, you know, having in place these plans and having a, a risk mitigation strategy in place is uh, absolutely essential these days. And Patrick, I'm going to come back to you if I may. So why is cyber and cybersecurity an important issue for directors and officers, you know, an issue they should be cognizant of and one they should be addressing? I guess it's really because of the potential for severe consequences to be suffered by the company. And I would put those consequences into into three separate um, categories. Firstly, there's the ability of the company to continue trading. And in circumstances where uh, your systems are paralyzed, um, many companies will simply be unable to trade or unable to sell or unable to keep their factories operating. Um, secondly, there's the, there's the reputational hazards to companies, and we've seen many many examples in the in in, in the media of large companies who've been heavily criticised for their handling of uh, data breach uh, incidents. And I think there is one issue which is common to many of them, and that is transparency, because many companies are criticised for not coming out more promptly and telling their consumers, their customers, their business partners exactly what has happened uh, and what has gone on. And if you want uh, an example of a company whose uh, reputation was severely damaged, then I guess you could look at the dating website, Ashley Madison, which is one organization which is almost entirely dependent on its IT security in order to continue trading. And when people realized their personal data was going to be breached, that was pretty terminal to to that uh, organization. I guess finally, there's the there's the the obvious impact on the on the share price uh, of the company, which is really a function of those two uh, issues: the the ability to trade and the reputation uh, of the of of the company. So I think really, when you put all those things together, Owen, it's something which um, these knows should really have at the forefront of their thoughts when looking at the the types of issue which uh, they need to look out for. So Will A, um, Patrick's run through us there, you know, why why this is an important issue and something that directors um, can, should be cognizant of and what the potential consequences are. How can an event or a situation in a cyber context turn into a DNO exposure? The, the issues that Patrick has highlighted are obviously extremely important um, and potentially damaging for the company. But most of, so the ICO investigation and the, uh, the compensation claims, at least at the moment, are focused purely towards the company. I think the issues for the directors historically have been um, the possible intervention of other regulators. So, for example, the FCA or the PRA, they've instigated uh, investigations in connection with various cyber or data issues. 
And the real issue for the directors and for their insurers has been the costs and defending and representing those directors in those investigations. And, you know, I've had cases you know, where those costs have you know, escalated to the tens of millions of pounds. So it's a very serious issue for all of them. You know, it's very, these investigations are very serious for directors. They have, um, you know, potential fines, sanctions can be implemented. And obviously there are reputational issues. And there have been, you know, various examples of high profile directors. Who have resigned as a result of these uh, cyber and data issues? You know, just a couple of examples: the you know Talk Talk director and also Target CEO as well. So you know that's historically where we've seen most focus on the directors. I mean, there is a lot of speculation as to whether or not the directors themselves could be subject to claims in relation to these cyber instances, data breaches. There's been talk about whether or not minority shareholders could bring a derivative action. And that's been debated for some time, whether or not those actions should could perhaps be based on a breach of one of the duties in the Companies Act. So, for example, one of the Section 172 or 174, so duties promotes the success of the company or duties to exercise reasonable care, skill um, and diligence. And I think the issue is that although that is a possibility, first of all, they're very difficult to get off the ground. You need the permission of the court, and that you know just hasn't really been granted very often uh, in in any context, let alone in the cyber security context. Um, and even then, you know, what is the chance of those claims succeeding? But I think that it is interesting to look at you know what's happened elsewhere. So in the US, there have been a number of attempts to bring derivative actions in in, in cyber cases, and you know. To be fair, actually, most of them have failed. But I think it's interesting that you know, relatively recently we had the Yahoo data breach related derivative lawsuit. And that ended up, didn't actually get to court, but it ended up settling for $29 million. So I think it's it's interesting. Perhaps that is the way of travel. And the other country where I was looking at was in Australia. And I thought it was very interesting that the government's currently considering making DNAs personally responsible for cyber attacks. Um, and that was a, a statement made by the Minister for Home Affairs, Karen Andrews, you know, very recently in July this year. That is a topic I'm interested in. Um, the thing you're talking about there, Will, and it's it's just that concept of claim compensation culture and how this can impact on, on the exposures that directors and officers face. Do, do you think, what's your view on that? I mean, um, I'll put this to to everyone, but do you think that compensation culture has arrived in the UK yet? If it hasn't, do you, do you think there's a good chance it will at some point? Well, look, undoubtedly, um, Owen, it has. I mean, you know, lots of people have been, you know, touting the fact that US securities or class actions are, have arrived in the UK for a number of years. And, you know, that's largely been untrue. But we, we've definitely seen a change in recent years, particularly if you look at the um, securities um, actions. There are claims now that are being brought under uh, Section 90 and Section 90A of FISMA, both engaging the DNO policy. Um, I think that there is a real appetite amongst claimant lawyers and their litigation funders to identify what they consider to be likely claims, whether that's stock drop or otherwise. And certainly, we, we've seen an expansion of those claims. There are group litigation, opt-out claims in competition, competition claims. So I don't think it's a big stretch of the imagination to see that you know eventually there is going to be uh, an expansion of similar claims in different areas. And I think cyber must be one of those that you know is rife for at least exploration. So, yeah, I, I would say that that could definitely happen in the near future. I think, Owen, just 
picking up on Patrick's point, there's definitely been a hardening of the position of the FCA over the last few years in respect of these issues. And Patrick and Will have obviously spoken previously about the regulatory interest on directors being of top priority at the moment and, and that directors are really being scrutinised. And I think it's really important that directors, when looking at these issues in respect of risk mitigation, realise that cybersecurity obviously is now no longer within the remit of the IT department of a company. It is something that needs to be at the top of the agenda within the boardroom. And as we've spoken, everybody needs to be aware from the top down the procedures that need to be in place should you have a cybersecurity incident. Um, the FCA last year stated that cybersecurity was, quote, the biggest challenge facing the regulated sector. But at the same time, they also said that the FCA expects businesses to have, quote, contingencies in place for major events. So I think what they're saying there is that it's not acceptable for office holders of these businesses simply to say that cyber events are unexpected. They need to be preparing from them, as Patrick has mentioned, and dealing with those issues at a boardroom level so that it's cascaded down throughout the organisation. Thinking about risk mitigation in this area, Patrick and Will, you've summarised what you've seen in terms of impact to business and potential exposure to directors and officers. What does the future hold? What's on the horizon um, that could lead to more claims in this area? Well, well, I guess one of the issues which has only recently come to the fore is the is the, the threat of heavy regulatory uh, fines and penalties. And I say that because prior to the introduction of GDPR in May 2018, the maximum fine which the ICO could impose was half a million pounds. Now, of course, we've seen the BA and Marriott fines at of roughly £20 million apiece, that those fines can be significant in the most extreme of, of cases. I, I think we also need to be aware of the fact that GDPR has enshrined a right for data subjects whose personal data has been leaked to bring compensation, even in circumstances where they've suffered no financial loss themselves. And uh, with data breaches involving significant numbers of data subjects, such as the BA class action and underway, there's the potential for the company to be on the wrong end of claims for damages and costs uh, of many, many millions of pounds. So it's really looking at those financial exposures and the and the possibility for those to rebound on these nose in the event that the reason before the breach can be traced back to something which the these nose have done in breach of their statutory or regulatory duties. Look, sometimes despite all of your best efforts um, or, or a company's best efforts, an attack or incident is just um, unavoidable. So, of course, it's actually within the organisation's control to think about how they can plan and mitigate the potential fallout. And you've you've um, run through your your sort of three areas that that they should be focusing on. I think it's also important to look at the the cases where you know this has been done successfully. Could you walk us through you know the successful handling of a of a cyber event looks like, and can you provide some insight regarding what pre-event measures were? In place that might have helped to mitigate the event and you know any resultant exposure. I think that broadly speaking, clients are sympathetic to business partners who've experienced um, a cyber incident or a data breach in that they are now widely recognised as being uh, one of the um, hazards of uh, everyday business life. Of course, there is an important proviso to that, which is that the uh, the attack or incident hasn't been provoked by something you've done, which has encouraged the attack. I think in terms of um, handling cyber incidents, the single most important thing 
to to have in place is a coherent plan, an instant response plan, a crisis response plan, so that it's clear who exactly at the organization has responsibility for dealing with the incident at first hand. And generally speaking, I would expect there to be representatives from the IT, legal and finance, possibly HR uh, functions as well, and for alternates to be lined up in the event that one of those uh, individuals uh, is unavailable uh, for, what, for, for whatever reason. The plan should also include details of the external response team, which might mean um, certainly external IT forensic team, uh, external legal team, external PR consultants um, would be the ones who I would regard as most important. Uh, And of course, as part of that, the insurers are are a critical part of the uh, response process. To the extent that it's possible, I would strongly recommend making any decisions in advance uh, of when um, they have to be taken. And a good example of that is the decision as to whether or not to pay a ransom. Very often, companies may have a policy decision on whether or not to pay a ransom. And there's the time to have a board meeting to debate that, whether the company should, in principle, engage with threat actors in the most extreme circumstances, is in advance of any crisis when you've got the time to deliberate over the decision. And then the decision is made, and you're not, you're not trying to make it on the hoof when you're in the, in the eye of the storm. The instances which have proceeded most smoothly are those where the internal and external teams have knitted together uh, successfully. There's been a coherent plan and strategy, and people are not wandering off uh, and doing things on their uh, own own account. And the reputation of the company um, has been successfully protected. I would also say that communications are absolutely critical. So internal communications to the rest of the company, if they can't access their systems, for example, they want to know why. Otherwise, the rumor will rumor mill will take over and you never know what sort of messages are going to be generated. Of course, external communications are very important as well. But whilst it's very important to be candid and um, transparent uh, with your business partners, what you don't want to do is to concern them unnecessarily about the potential consequences of any breach. And that's particularly the case where personal data is at risk because you don't want to um, promote any of the third-party compensation claims, which we're, which, which we're now seeing a result from uh, very many data breaches. I mean, I've very recently completed uh, a cyber incident on behalf of a a small organization. They only had a handful of directors, but the process was remarkably smooth because everyone knew what they were doing. Uh, And even though the company's uh, existence was under threat, they were able to knit together uh, and work together to try and work their way through it to make sure the, the data decryption and the restoration of data process uh, went smoothly with, inter- with interaction between the internal forensic team and the external forensic team, and the communications were sent out to staff. And we had a few queries from staff, but we were able to resolve them um, uh, successfully. So it can be done. And as I say, these these instances are regarded as part of everyday life. I do think that if you handle them correctly, if you handle them swiftly, if you handle them efficiently, it's actually possible to gain the respect and goodwill and possibly even enhance your your reputation amongst your key stakeholders. But of course, the flip side is the downsides of not handling a cyber incident correctly are very real, as we've seen with some of the examples that we've discussed during the course of this podcast. Great. Thank you for that, Patrick. So we're, we're now, we're at the end. We're going to finish with some quick fire question and answer round at the end. So Will, and I'm going to come to you with this. Um, within the context, again, with, with cyber and potential uh, resultant exposures to directors and officers, could you tell us what do you think would be your top three risk mitigation behaviors or strategies that directors can implement now that would help them mitigate the risk in this area? 
Yeah, thanks, Owen. I'm, I'm probably going to give you the lawyer answer and and uh, not keep to three, but I'll, I'll I'll do my best. I think the most important thing that we are seeing from what is coming out of the particular regulators is is moving the discussion around cyber away from being an IT issue to something that needs to be right at the top of management within a business, and that necessarily needs to be debated at board level. That needs to be a, a cultural shift if it hasn't already been put in place. I think in terms of top three, we've already heard about having robust procedures in place, both in terms of prevention and mitigation, but also after the events and everybody knowing how to deal with it. The, the second is is dealing with managing high-risk individuals that might be handling critical data, making sure that you have systems in place to mitigate um, any breaches. And, and thirdly, sort of overarching all this, the FCA have coined a phrase what they that they call having a positive security culture from top to bottom within a business. And that's something that we think each of your insured should look to be doing over the next um, few weeks and months if they haven't got a system in place already. So thank you to Patrick Hill, Will Allison and Will Naylor for their insights there. And I think they very well explained the relevance of cyber risks to the directors and officers of a company. Some of the themes there will have been familiar to those who have heard other more kind of broader cyber risk and insurance discussions before. But Owen, what were some of the kind of key DNO takeaways for you? So, yeah, when it comes to risk mitigation in this area, for these and those, the main things to take away for me are, you know, it's not just about prevention, which is reviewing and testing and detection. These things won't guarantee success in this space because, as Patrick says, it's a hazard of everyday business. So it's critical to have that risk remediation plan in place. And that is, you know, something akin to a, a crisis response plan. Who's got responsibility for what, both external and internal? Try as much as possible to give consideration to making decisions that you can in advance. And another takeaway for me, you know, if handled well, dealing with an incident successfully can actually enhance your reputation with various stakeholders. Secondly, PIBSAC is just a great acronym, so I'm just going to repeat that one. But it's a well-known stat that incidents occur because of human error, but it's a useful reminder in a sense of the importance of training and embedding um, a culture of awareness around risks in this area. Had a useful reminder too on just that internal communications can be as important as external communications in the event of a breach and get this wrong, you risk the rumour mill going into overdrive, which can create damage via misinformation. And finally... Historically, in the DNO kind of liability context, we have seen claims, but um, you know, in the US as well, but we haven't seen an avalanche of claims resulting in in exposures to D's and O's. But maybe again, this is is the direction of travel following on from the regulatory interest in this area all over the world. Well, great. That is all we have time for in episode four of the Rising Edge DNO podcast. Please remember that the easiest way to make sure you do not miss a future episode and do explore the back catalogue of episodes is to subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just search for Rising Edge DNO podcast and hit follow or subscribe. You can also sign up for email updates from the Rising Edge website by visiting risingedge.co and clicking on the DNO podcast tab. But Owen, in the meantime, stay well and see you soon take care Richard see you next time